When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. My name is Mark Hummel, and this is Mark Hummel's Harmonic Party, and we're joining Charlie Musselwhite again, this time in California. Yeah, buddy, you'll get your word in. And uh, we're just going to talk a little more about some of the stuff we left off with last time, which was Charlie left off um, with the time he was in Chicago right before he left for California, and you were just explaining to me how you made it out to California. You said somebody... Somebody brought you out? Who was it that brought you out to California? Uh, there was a disc jockey named uh, Vaco. Huh. His real name, I think, was Abe Cash. Okay. And he was on uh, the, the underground radio station. I forget the call letters now. It changed the letters. Come on now. Uh, a couple <laughs> times. And uh, he uh, got me uh, a bunch of gigs, and he called me up, and he I had really had no intentions really of touring or going anywhere. And uh Oh he wants his toy. <laughs> so uh uh I'd been putting off people that had been calling about gigs in different places. It just really wasn't enough money to travel that far to do and I was having a great time in Chicago. Right. So uh <laughs> He wants you to take that from him. So Abe offered me a whole month of work uh, for really good money, and I thought, well, I'll I'll just go out there and make that money and come on back. But I went out to California right away. I just, I knew I wasn't going back to Chicago. People were really nice and evolved. Right. You know? It evolved thinking. Right. Uh, it was the hippie era. Right. Uh, and the weather was great. San Francisco was a beautiful place. Um, and I, from talking to other people, I realized that the whole West Coast had a lot of places to play, and there were bigger rooms and even ballrooms and uh, auditoriums and like the Fillmore. Right. It paid. Way better than those little Chicago yeah. blues bars. So now, hey, did you come out like say after uh, Paul Butterfield and Bloomfield? Yeah, um, the following year. My so. album came out in '67. Uh, I don't know, remember the date it came out, but I came out to California in the fall, autumn or yeah, August or September or something like uh-huh. that. And then my first gig was at the Fillmore with. Uh, Butterfield and Cream. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And then I worked a bunch of places around 
the New Orleans house in Berkeley. Right, and right, I remember that. I don't remember where else. You played Mandrakes a lot? Yeah, I did. But I'm just talking about when I first... Right, when you first made This it. first little yeah. thing the guy had set up. Right. And I found an apartment in Berkeley, and uh, my wife and son came out and joined me, and that was the beginning of living on the West Coast. Now, did you live in that same one that Kahatsi used to live in? Yeah, the Dan Burt apartment. Right, right. At the corner of uh, College, yeah, College and... College and... I yeah, was that it? That's where it was. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, how did you meet Tim Kahatsu, anyway? Well, he lived upstairs, uh -huh. and I think he just came down and introduced himself one day. I don't really remember, but uh, he would often come down and listen to my records. I had a lot of good uh -huh. records. Yeah. And uh, we just became really good friends. And uh, he was a pretty good guitar player, and yeah. I didn't know anybody. And yeah, the band I brought out, they all immediately they all went right back. When we finished with those gigs, they all had their own ideas. Each one right. wanted their own band, huh. and they're all going to come back. <laughs> Harvey was That's the only great. one that actually did that. The other two went back to, well, no, the drummer joined uh, Cold Blood, I think. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sandy McKee. Huh. And, uh, the, but did everybody stay in California? Uh, the bass player Harry Motlow went back to. Chicago. Dave Cook was the keyboardist. He had a B3 with a piano, electric piano on top. He went back, and uh, I thought for sure he was going to come. The way he was talking, he had it all. I got it all figured out, you know. <laughs> and then all that, he already was talking about the tunes he was going to be arranging, and the, the horn section, and all this stuff. And, he had big ideas. Yeah, so, and everybody's ideas were a little different than mine. I right. wanted to play blues. Right. Know? Right. And uh, so. We played those dates that the guy booked, and then uh, that was we were all on our own. And I started looking around. Tim knew a lot of people, so it was easy for him to put something together for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And at first, we just played some little, some little college kind of places, and then later, as as I got to know the area and got get out and get around, I found uh, the whole blues scene. Of, like in Richmond and Oakland, and mm -hmm. got to meet a lot of other musicians, and things just kept evolving. And yeah, I just at first it was a real scramble for me because I didn't have a booking agency, I didn't have a manager, and uh, this was completely different from playing music in Chicago. Oh yeah, the blues joints. There wasn't any yeah. contracts or nothing. Right. I mean, right. So I mean, this was now. This is like. Uh, business you know real yeah. business and i've yeah. thrown in the deep end of the pool and right. i don't know how to swim uh so uh you know trial and error i just figured it out as i went you know and tried not to repeat too many mistakes <laughs> right and uh i used to go down to hate street and you told me they would just look at you like you're from another planet <laughs> i used to like to go to hate street because to me, it was better than any zoo I've right. ever been in. Exactly. And, you know, it was really interesting and uh, far out. And, uh, you know, it was just, I just stand and watch the parade. I mean, it was people with wild hair and beads and that, that, uh, that perfume that I hate. Oh, patchouli. Ah, that stuff is horrible. Uh, 
but you told me the hippies would come up and go. Well, this one yeah, guy, man, fuck uh, you. This one guy came up to me one time. He said, "Wow, man, are you Charlie Musselwhite?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Man, you're weird." And he had, you know, <laughs> hair out to here and all kind of a pirate shirt or something, and, uh, and I had on shades and my hair slicked back. Oh, that's I, great! I wore like a sport coat or black right. sport coat or something. I had right. pointed toe shoes, and which was the style I should Sure, it. yeah. Uh, but I didn't care. You know, to me, it was all amusing. Right. I choose to be amused as much as I can. Right. Uh, but the hippies were real open to everything. Right. You know? So uh, it was, and they were playing my record on the San Francisco underground radio, yeah. which yeah. was the hippie radio. Right. And everybody, everybody tuned into that. Yeah. I wish I could remember the call letters. Disc jockey at one of those stations, uh, Donahue, Tom Donahue. Oh, Tom Donahue. Right. 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 He, he was part of helping book us, to get us to come out to California. Right. He was right. a great guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was getting played a lot, and, and uh, people, the kids knew who I was, and they'd come to the clubs. And yeah. So I just suddenly had this career, you know. Right. Well, it's kind of, I remember there's a real famous photograph of Hate Street, of all these people on Hate Street, and the, the, the straight theater has a marquee that says Charlie Musselwhite on it. Yeah. yeah, it's like a real famous yeah, there's a, photo. That theater's not there. There's a Goodwill no. there where that right. theater was. Right, uh, exactly. With, with the people, the street was full of people in the middle of the day or the afternoon right. because uh, Grateful Dead was going to do a free right. concert on right. a exactly. truck or something. I think that's what it's from, yeah. And, uh, there's sure even people is. up on the tops of buildings looking right. down. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I played that night at the Straight Theater. So did you get to know some of the hippie bands and stuff at that time? or? Yeah, I knew Jerry Garcia. Uh -huh. Not well, but we I remember he was always friendly and we right. would talk. I don't remember what we talked about. but. Um, and Nick was already out here. Nick had been coming out to California as a folk yeah. singer. Right. Um, you know, when he was in Chicago, he was... Him and Paul had kind of like a Sonny Terry, Brandon McGee thing. Right, right. Uh, and Nick was like this, the big name. Nick had come out here with Paul in, in the early 60s, too. And Well, Nick was going coming out alone at first. He was a singer-songwriter, right. folk, folk singer. Played guitar, and he played probably around North Beach and stuff. Right, I'm not exactly. sure exactly where yeah, he played. Yeah, right. And around Chicago, uh, Paul was his harmonica player. Right. And uh, I don't know that they played together as a duo in California. I know. Yeah, he told me they drove out here. I, Nick, he, he Nick told me that. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, that yeah, he said they came out here. I know that Paul had come out to California. Cause when he came back to Chicago, I remember he had kind of a sunburn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him one time at uh, it was Little Walter and uh, Robert Nighthawk playing at uh, some kind of thing at University of Chicago. Right, right. And uh, Paul showed up. And that's, I heard Little Walter play guitar that night, too. Huh, wow. But uh, he was probably coming out during the Beatnik era. He might have been. the tail end of it. So he was already established on a yeah. certain level. And then Paul, yeah, he got his own band going. And he played at the same some of the same clubs I played in. Yeah, because uh, you told me they used to confuse you and him. 
People, yeah, people will come up to me and say, you're Paul, right? You, know, <laughs> you play a monitor, right? Yeah, you're Paul. No, I'm not. And we kind of... Well, it's just such a freak thing to have two white guys playing blues harmonica. Yeah, Paul used to joke about we had the same... We had harmonica players' eyebrows. Right. He said we had the same eyebrows. Right. Same yeah. hairstyle. Pretty much. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I lived on 61st Place in Chicago at the dead end of Blackstone. Right in the heart of the Blackstone Ranger right. gang yeah. area. And Paul lived on the other side of uh, 55th, I think, which was Hyde Park. Right, right. Where the University of Chicago Where the university is. is yeah. a nice neighborhood. Right. Where I lived was not, not a nice neighborhood <laughs> not nice. at all. In fact, you could die there. Right. Easily. Real easily. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Paul would call me up and say, hey, man, come on over if you're not doing anything. And, Let's get high and listen to some records or something. And uh, before he'd hang up, he'd say, can you bring me a Pepsi? He always wanted a cold Pepsi. Instead of coffee in the morning, he'd like to have a cold Pepsi. That's funny. It must have been the caffeine. Yeah. Man, it was yeah. cold and wet yeah. and sweet and wet yeah. down. So uh, I'd bring him a Pepsi and we'd sit around and smoke a joint and play records and talk about harmonica. I remember... He had a new Ramsey Lewis album, and there was some lick that Ramsey played, and he was... Figuring it out. Yeah. So, and I did the same sort of thing, where I, instead of listening to other harmonica players, I listened to other instruments with right. phrasing and and ideas that you haven't heard before on harmonica. Well, I think, I think that the Chicago harmonica players, it seemed like in that time period were really hip to jazz. I remember you were one of the first guys I heard doing, you and Butterfield and Little Walter and people like that were doing, you know, jazz tunes on the harmonica before anybody else. Well, uh, you know, all the clubs had jukeboxes and right. they all had uh, like Jack McDuff and Jimmy Smith right. and Lou Donaldson and all those mm -hmm. jazz blues kind of guys on those uh, jukeboxes. That was popular music in Chicago. Right. And on the south side, anyhow. And, uh, another place I lived was in Old Town, and there were a lot of jazz clubs around there. Hmm. And uh, since I lived in the neighborhood, I could get in and see anybody for right. free. And all, the, wow. all the door people knew me. And I remember Roscoe Mitchell and Jackie McLean and, gosh, just a... A lot of Chicago jazz guys. Yeah, but there were yeah. guys that would come... Jackie come, McLean didn't live there. He, okay. He would, a lot of guys would tour coming through there and play the clubs that would have jazz or blues. They had both. Mm -hmm. And a lot of jazz players would come to blues gigs. And right. There would be uh, jam sessions. There were, in Hyde Park, there was uh, where Ross, well, I don't know where Roscoe Mitchell lived, but uh, there was a, somebody had a basement apartment, a big apartment, and there was a, like every Tuesday or something, there was this, all these jazz guys would be there just jamming. Wow. And they were playing like way out. Uh, if you know. Avant garde stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you've heard Roscoe Mitchell, you know what I mean. Yeah, I haven't really heard him. So I would hang out there a lot. I mean, I just. Uh, I don't know if I was learning anything, but uh, it must have had some effect on me somehow. Mm -hmm. and, and then the, the, a lot of the just regular old school jazz players around too. Um, I mean, a guy like little brother Montgomery, 
he played blues, but he also he could play anything. Oh yeah, he could play anything. And he yeah. could play jazz and play trad jazz too. He's yeah, a great trad jazz. jazz guy. Yeah, he, yeah, he was good at that. He played yeah. in a lot of Dixieland. That's clubs. what I heard. There was a club right on Sixty Third at Dorchester. I can't remember the name of it, but it had a a bandstand behind the bar, and I'd walk over there and sit at the bar and listen to jazz all night. You know, many many times. Wow. And Junior Wells lived right on Dorchester's. I'd Did he? pass by his apartment on the way to this club. Did you know him pretty good? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 He, he, we became friends right right, right away. Mm-hmm. He was a good guy. And we would pass each other often going and coming from the liquor store. Oh, okay. The Red Rooster, it was the Red Rooster grocery store and liquor store. Huh. And we were always making trips back and forth to the... That's funny. I mean, I was in there so much. As soon as I walked in the door, they started putting it on the counter. They knew what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of alcohol... Yeah? So I just wanted to get into the thing of, um, you know, that uh, you've been sober now for, what, 36 years? Since 87. Since 87, yeah. Yeah, so I sobered up in 84, so... Yeah. You got over 34 years, something like that? I don't know. 35, yeah. You can add it up. Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't have, I quit going for my chips, so I I lost track. Right. What what got you sober? I mean, you know, you're you're one of the first real drinkers I was around back in the day. I'd say you and Brownie and, and Johnny Waters and some of the guys I was hanging around were, were could all put it away in a pretty mighty well, I came way. out of an environment where everybody I knew drank. Right. Paul drank too. I mean, right. we were both big drinkers. and uh, Even where I grew up in the South, I mean, it was just a... It was a way of life. Men, yeah. men drank. Right. And, uh, and I think in the blues world, it was particularly yeah, everybody, a part of the culture. Everybody I knew drank. Yeah. Men and women. And, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't... didn't have any stigma to it. Or, right. Uh, and the thing was, you're supposed to know how to hold your liquor. You know? Right, right. Anyhow, uh, it, it got out of hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I got up to where I was drinking uh, two quarts of liquor a day. Oh, my God. And uh, I, at some point, had some moment of clarity where I realized, this is insane. Right. You're killing yourself. Right. You, this cannot keep going. This, you gotta, you have to, but I couldn't figure out, it's funny now looking back on it, I couldn't figure out how do you stop? I mean, right. I, I couldn't, how do you do that? I know, I, it didn't you know, seem like something you could do. I'd never been on a stage sober. Yeah, me neither. I, I'd, I'd never been on a stage with anybody that wasn't drunk. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it all went together, so yeah. it just fit together all so perfectly. And, yeah. And, uh, but I knew that this was this was crazy, and uh, so my first idea was, well, I'll I'll just start cutting down, and so I'd wait an hour each day when I woke up. I'd wait another hour before I had that first drink. I used to just drink if I was awake. I was yeah, drinking. you used to drink first thing. I would drink yeah. if I was awake, right. Right. night or day. Right. I would drink. Yeah. I'd keep a bottle on the floor, right, by the bed. In the middle of the night, I could have a hit. So uh, I'd wait an hour, and I remember getting all the way up to noon without a drink, and I thought that was 
calls for celebration, so I had a drink, of course. <laughs> and uh, finally, I got to where I didn't drink all day. Right. I could go 24 hours without a drink. I thought, hmm, this is kind of working out. Uh, but I'd never been on the stage sober. I'd never played sober. And I didn't feel comfortable. I never was one that was interested in being in the spotlight and mm -hmm. having attention and people looking at me, playing right. and me putting on a show. None of that ever appealed to me right. at all. I remember one time Mike Bloomfield telling me that he, the best thing in the world to him would be in a room full of people and everybody looking at him. <laughs> you told me. And when he said that, just a shudder just went through my body. I thought, because I felt like exactly the opposite. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but when, if I was drinking, getting on stage matter. and playing yeah. was yeah. nothing to it. Right, you know? right. I didn't care. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> this is a party, boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that, now, this is the last hurdle, how to get on stage without drinking. And uh, I was driving to work and uh, going to a club in Santa Cruz. And I'm listening to the news, and they're talking about this little girl that fell in the well in Texas. Mm -hmm. Jessica McClure was her name. And uh, she's down in the bottom of this well. I think she has a broken arm. And um, they've lowered a microphone down to where they can communicate with her. And, there she is in the dark at the bottom of this well, and she's singing nursery rhymes to herself. Is mm. in the news are telling me this, and I was struck by how uh, brave she was. Here she was in a real life and death situation. Maybe she was too young to even realize the situation, but certainly she had to know something was messed up. I mean, to be in the dark at the bottom of a hole, right? You know, yeah. stuck with a broken arm, and, right? Uh, but I was, I really wanted her to live, and I really wanted her to survive this thing, and it was really dicey, yeah. because it could cave in, they didn't right. know how to get to her without it caving in, and the, all this stuff, and, and I told Henrietta, I said, that that's it, I'm not drinking till they get her out of the well. That was my version of a prayer for her, mm -hmm. I was not going to drink in her honor, uh, because I th I, then I thought of myself, and I thought, what's what's the big deal with you, buddy? I mean, <laughs> here's something you know perfectly well how to do. You've done it a thousand times. Right. Just get on the fucking stage and play. <laughs> what's the problem, you know? What's the big deal? You know, and here's this little girl being so brave, you know. Right. If you had just a fraction of her bravery, you could go play. What's the deal? And it, it kind of put a perspective on things for me and uh, they didn't so I got to the club and, and I'm saying to Henry you know I can use a drink <laughs> and she told the waitress bring one of every non-alcoholic drink you have to this table <laughs> had a coke and a seven up and water and ginger ale and, and uh, I remember being on stage and I'm like sweating and gagging and my knees felt like jelly. I felt like I was going to faint or something. And then when I got off stage, everybody said, man, you sounded great. I've never heard you sound so good. And I thought, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> and, and the other part of the story is it took them about three days to get her out of the well, as I recall. It might have been longer. And by then, yeah. I was out of the well, too. I just never had a drink since. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. 
And then when it was over, it was like, damn, what was that all about? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what took so long? Why was it so confusing? Why yeah. Was, you know. Well, you had a lot of people. A lot of people passed too. I mean, you know, that were alcoholics. Oh yeah, a lot, a lot, of, a lot, yeah. a lot of good friends. We were talking about uh, Charlie moving out to the West Coast and how he quit drinking 35 years ago and many other exploits. But you know what I wanted to get into with you is um, the latter part of your career, and specifically I'd love to talk about the last two records you did, both the one with Elvin and your newest solo one that's doing so well. But you have worked with so many like really famous people in the last, you know, 30 years or so. I mean, between uh, In Excess, didn't you, didn't you record with those guys? Mm -hmm. In Excess, and particularly Cindy Lauper and then uh, Ben Harper. And yeah. then the Blind Boys of Alabama, I think you got something yeah. coming up with those guys. Yeah, we got a couple of tours coming up. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, those have been, those were real game changers for, you, for your career, right? I mean, especially Cindy Lauper and Ben Harper, it seems like. Well, it got me in front of huge audiences right. of people that had never heard of me, and uh, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I remember with Cindy, she would uh, point to me to take a solo, you know, and the spotlight would be on her. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking a solo, but the spotlight stays on her. <laughs> and I'm looking out at the audience and all the people looking at Cindy, looking at me. How funny. And... Uh, so finally, she would come and make the spotlight follow her, and uh -huh. she would stand behind me. Ah, so they okay. had to put the spotlight. That's on. interesting. Wow, <laughs> crazy. And uh, but it's surprising at the uh, reception that you know, this wasn't a blues audience or nothing, and and uh, I wasn't a young guy. And like with Ben Harper, people just lit up when I would be playing, or and or and Ben had me sing a few songs too each night. Right. And people really, really went for it. I, mm -hmm. I was amazed at how much they how totally they accepted me and, and seemed to really be knocked out by what I was doing. Yeah. Because it wasn't a blues crowd. So do you think that has to do with the whole thing of that people just don't get a chance to hear blues harmonica as that's much? About, I think that's a yeah. valid idea that yeah. they these were people that never heard blues harmonica or right. didn't really know much about blues. But my, I've always said that if anybody is ever exposed to blues properly, you can't help but like it. Right. Almost everybody likes it when they hear it. Right. A lot of people hear stuff that's not really blues. They think it's blues. Right. Like I remember one time a guy saying, oh, yeah, like Birth of the Blues, that's a great song. That's, you know. <laughs> Well, that's a great song, but that's not really the blues. You know? So he really had no clue what yeah, I was talking yeah, about. Yeah. And a lot of people are like that. They, yeah. People that think they know what blues is hadn't really heard it. Right, right. So, um, like I say, once they hear the real deal, people can't deny it. Right. They just got to hear more of that. So, in that situation, a rock situation, and they hear this blues like so in some rock bands there's some harmonica playing but it's pretty sloppy and mm -hmm. not really right you know not the real deal so when they hear something played the way we would play it you know um, it really opens the ears up right and, uh, so it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> well it's a nice thing that you got you know that you got a break like that you know what i mean and that's 
that's something I think most musicians, you know, because blues musicians, we were talking about this in the car, you know, we're, we're really just want to work. You yeah. know, that's really 90% of it. It's just we want to be able to apply our trade and, you know. Well, for me, it's interesting to see how I can fit into a different situation. Right, right. Uh, like with this uh, Cuban music. You know? Right. I love how, for me, it just seems so natural to go together, blues phrasing mm -hmm. with the Cuban song, right. traditional song. Right. Uh, or with wh whoever, whatever. like doing, uh, you know, Cindy did a blues album she recorded in Memphis, and the album's called Memphis Blues, mm -hmm. and then we toured together for two years. So we would do some blues tunes, and then we'd do some of her hits. Like girls just want to have fun, and you'd you know? play on those. Now have a, has yeah. a harmonica solo, right? And I remember one morning we did one of those morning TV shows, like eight in the morning or something, out in the middle of uh, Times Square, right. all the neon. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And just me and the piano yeah. player and Cindy right. doing uh, girls just want to have fun. True Colors, uh, I really enjoyed. It. Just her and I would do that as a duo. Yeah, yeah. She'd play uh, what's that? The dulcimer. Oh, okay. And uh, with a slide yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I remember she'd say, nothing says blues like a mountain dulcimer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really do her accent, but she's, she's a delightful woman. Yeah. Uh, she was real good friends with Johnny Ace. Did you know that? I know that they knew each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they knew each other back when she first was getting right. started. Right, exactly. Yep. But she's so... Uh, she can be real silly, and she can get as deep as you want to get. Yeah. And she can also be as heavy as you want to get. I mean, right. You, don't, you do not want to cross that woman. <laughs> I've heard. And uh, I've seen her just chew people up and spit them oh, out. Oh, I bet. And it's yeah. like a work of art. I just loved it. I mean, going, yes. She's very yes. practiced at it. <laughs> well, she just won't put up for any baloney, yeah. you know. Yeah. I don't blame her. She's Right. But she also has a huge heart and does a lot to help a lot of people that you never hear about. Yeah. She doesn't do it for... That's beautiful. ...for, for publicity. Or yeah. It's just right from the heart. That's great. She's a fabulous person. Yeah. That's wonderful. So... And we're still in touch. And that's that's great. I, you guys are still in touch. I from her just a yeah. few days ago. Good. That's great. Well, you've done... Uh, Quite a few albums, I mean, on Alligator, isn't that right? Over the last, what, 20 years or something? Yeah, I don't know. Half a dozen, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've put out records on your own? Yeah, on the Henrietta label. On the Henrietta label? Yeah, that was yeah. my idea. So that, not, was a, that was a good decision. So, <laughs> <laughs> good name, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm just curious, like, how do you decide which ones end up on a like a big label like Alligator and which ones you decide to put out yourself, what kind of determines that? Uh, well, you know, like Alligator really knows how to sell records. Mm -hmm. They have a real good distribution. They do real good promotion and uh, around the world. And they've got the blues community covered. You know? mm -hmm. And they have contacts that are real old that are still... You know, they've created a whole network. Uh, right. And the people that work at Alligator have been there a long time. It's not a fast turnover there. They right. all love the music. They love working there, despite... <laughs> <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> you know, I, like, I, I, I think of a, 
a real good relation with uh, Bruce, and I think the world of him, he's a good friend, but he can make you nuts. Bruce knows that, and uh, it's okay. We all, none of us are perfect. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, he, the whole alligator thing is a, really a work of the heart. Yeah. Labor of love. Yeah. So um, it's nice to be connected with that. And they yeah. get things done and they do them right. And they know they've been doing it long enough to really have some momentum behind anything they put yeah. out. And they, yeah. this last album, Mississippi Sun, they really... I was I was surprised at how excited they were about it. Yeah, um, it's done really well. Hasn't it? It's been getting rave reviews. The best reviews I've ever yeah. gotten. Right. Man. Didn't you get rolling a Rolling Stone quote out of? I think so. I mean, there's been yeah. so many I, I've yeah. lost track. Yeah, and it's uh, charted real well as I recall. It was the number one on the blues charts for two months. Or wow. Living Blues. That's I, great. I, one of those. No, that's the radio. That's radio yeah. stuff. Yeah, or, that's I, great. I don't know how that. Compares to other, no, that's people. really good. For me, I don't. I haven't been number one for two months. Yeah, of anything anywhere. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. And uh, and I should mention that on that album, you're playing guitar. I think on almost every song, right? The way that happened was uh, the pandemic hit, and suddenly I've got all this time on my hands. I never hadn't had this much time on my hands since I was a teenager or something, <laughs> and I'm loving it. Yeah. I'm getting things done around the house. I can actually start something and finish it without having to pack and leave. Again. Right. I used to hit, my suitcase used to be open all the time because I was going to fill it up and leave again. Same here. So uh, <laughs> now I actually got to put it away. Yeah. And I'm hanging out at the Clarksdale Soundstage, which is owned by a real good friend of mine named uh, Gary Vincent and his wife Carol Vincent. He's a singer songwriter, and they. Uh, we're in Nashville, in the whole music scene there. Uh, he wrote with a lot of famous people there. Uh, and I, he's got guitars laying around, or I bring a guitar over, and I'm just playing stuff. And one day he says, you know, I should be taping some of these songs you're playing. Uh, said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So uh, every now and then, I'd tape another couple or three, I don't know. And at some point, um, I think Henrietta said, you know, this could be an album. And we thought, yeah, I think she's right. <laughs> so then we got a local drummer and bass player to come in on some more tunes. And and I thought it was okay, you know. I, I kind of liked the tunes. There's tunes I've been doing for a long time, just for myself or for nobody else. And uh, sent it to the Alligator to see what they thought. And boy, they wanted it. And, Did they? And their enthusiasm really made me happy. I mean, yeah, yeah. With that kind of enthusiasm, you know you're going to get a right. good service. Right, they're going to do a good job, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that's how that worked out. It just started out just just uh, spontaneous. It wasn't even a plan. It just happened yeah. because of the pandemic. Well, I really enjoyed the choice of tunes that you did on it, too. The uh, What's the second to the last one on there? I uh, <laughs> You told me somebody somebody wrote it. And I'm trying to think of who it was some Americana artist. Guy Clark. Guy Clark, right? Of the Dark. That's a great song. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. I don't, I, you know, he didn't play it the way I played it. I turned yeah. it into a blues. It wasn't a blues. I really liked it, though. It. Yeah. But the lyrics I liked so well. Yeah. And I, as soon as I heard his version, I, 
I could see how they could be, I could adapt that to how I play guitar. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I had fun turning that into a blues. Yeah, I loved it. And yeah, then you did you. a spiritual, I think, in the very end. Yeah, right? um, the real name is The Voice We're Told. But I used to call it something else. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, but it's a deep song. Yeah, I learned it with the, the Blind Boys of Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've done that with <laughs> Okay, Buster. <laughs> I remember no comments from the peanut gallery, Buster. <laughs> I remember being with the Blind Boys of Alabama at the Lincoln Jazz Center in New York uh -huh. City, and we backed up Ralph Stanley. Oh, wow. And, man. What a show. Wow, that was so... I remember literally getting goosebumps. Right, right. And... Uh, so he was with the Blind Boys. He was singing solo and wow. Blind Boys, and and I backed him up. That's awesome. Yeah, and I remember I had his uh, biography with me. I got him to sign it, and uh, he didn't. He wasn't much of a talker. I said, "You know that song, so and so. I really like that song." He said, "Yep, that's a good one." You know. <laughs> are both country boys. Yeah. You know? The other album I really wanted to uh, just tell you how much I love is the, the 100 Years of Blues record. Oh, yeah. Of you and Elvin. Because to me, that, that album, that album really caught me by surprise because, I mean, I'd heard you guys before and you guys, I think, had already been doing the duo thing by that time. We started out, the way they came about, we did these package shows for a right. company called Cami. Mm -hmm. I forget what the letters stick, C-A-M-I. You know, they had a bus, and we all get on the bus, and mm -hmm. I remember uh, it'd be, I don't know, half dozen of us, and we'd play in different configurations, you know. Mm -hmm. Elvin would play with the front of the rhythm section or something, and then I would do something, and then we'd come back and do something together, we sit down side by side and just do a duo, and it really went over well, and we enjoyed doing it too. And then uh, somehow we got into doing more of that. Uh, they would book us into these performing arts centers, just me and Elvin. Right. And uh, we would get somebody to back us up too, like Bob. Like Welsh. Bob Welsh, yeah. Piano or guitar, right. and he's, right. he, he's a great player and great to have him behind us. Yeah, Bob's a great... It gives us the freedom to... Yeah. So anyhow, great choice. And, you know, Elvin will do a tune, and I'll do a tune, and in between we'll tell stories and right. just talk. None of it's planned out. We don't have a... We don't rehearse this stuff. You know, like I'll, I'll do a Sonny Boy tune, and right. I'll tell a Sonny Boy story there. Right. It might right. occur to me at that moment. Yeah, yeah. So we have a lot of fun, and I've always said if you're having fun on stage, the audience is going to have fun too. Right. So right. We do. It's just it's as easy as falling off a log. Right. And we really <laughs> enjoy the same music. Yeah. And we enjoy playing together. You we, guys have known each other forever. Yeah. Too. We, we've known yeah. each other since we back in the old Chicago. Days. Right. I in fact, when Elmer was playing with Butterfield before Broomfield, I thought that was a better band. Right. I remember we were talking about that it was before. More yeah. of a real blues band. More of a real blues band. I agree. And, uh, yeah. Mike just uh, rocked it up. Rocked it up, my yeah, taste. yeah, yeah. Um, no, you're right. I, their their records were really good together. Yeah. Or their or their original because the original recordings are just the four piece. 
Yeah. I remember I was yeah. at the sessions. Yeah. And, uh, were you at the sessions? Uh, yeah. A lot of those tunes I remember that were recorded. I've never not sure they ever got released. There's some instrumentals. And yeah, they did. Uh, they they did release it on a. There's an album called What's Shaken, that had some of those songs on it. Well, What's Shaken, the one I know was like a sampler. It was a sampler. It had like four different groups exactly. or something on but it. But they had like three or four on that. But there was a whole lot of more stuff. Oh, I know there was. It yeah. was not released, yeah. as far as I know. Right. No, that got released later on. There's an album, I think it's called Golden Butter, that has hmm. a bunch of the outtakes. I like, like to hear uh, that. Yeah, it's got uh, Too Late Brother on there by Lil Walter. And yeah. Quite a few uh, Lil Walter songs. Yeah, all did a lot of Lil Walter. Did a lot of Lil Walter. But I remember being in the studio there watching them record in New York City. Right. And it sounded good. It sounded great. And that wasn't, Bluefield wasn't there. No. I mean, yeah. you, we had, Mike and I used to take the Greyhound out to right. New York City kind of regularly whenever we could. Right. Just to check out the scene, see what was going on. And we knew John Hammond, and we'd call up John and see what's going on. That's how that album of his came out. The, uh, so many roads, so many trains. Right. Uh, he the was, one with the band on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Robbie Robertson on guitar. Right. Only right. He, then he was called Jamie Robertson. Right. That's and right. Levon Helm and yeah. Garth and all those guys. Yeah. Right. It was them and and Mike and I showed up and called John and see what's going on. I said, Come on down to the studio. What a recording. Trip. Yeah. So I went straight down there. That's great. Dylan was there hanging out. And, yeah. Uh, that's how that happened. I mean, it was yeah. just a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was a pretty good record. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when Mike heard uh, Robbie play, he went over to the piano. <laughs> <laughs> he was a little intimidated, huh? I guess. <laughs> well, it, it was better to have piano than a, another guitar. Right, right. But um, I was going to say, you know, the, the, El the Elvin um, album, you know, the UN Elvin album is, is such a... It's such a great kind of relaxed feel on it. That's what I really loved about it. Is it, it really did sound like uh, totally organic and un, you know, you guys didn't rehearse anything to death. You just sat down and played, and uh, and it's really got a great vibe to it in terms of you guys being able to lock in together on it. You know, it's just a natural fit. You know, yeah, to play together. We like the same tunes and. Yeah, uh, we really enjoy playing together. Yeah, so it's it sounds good. And like I was telling you, I mean, you mentioned the same song that that I was thinking of, which was "Midnight Hour Blues." is so heavy. Yeah, I love that. So term. heavy, and uh, yeah. I love the way uh, Elvin does it. And it's yeah, just he sings really, it it's just real blues. Real know? deep. Can't, yeah, can't real deny deep. This. Sure is. And he does it in a real special way, and mm -hmm. I look forward to doing that. We do it just about every night. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's great. Well, let's play Let's play a song or two, man, if you're okay with that. Okay. Okay. How about a, some e eight bar a blues? Yeah, go, go ahead on. E. Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you. 
Yeah. Well, all right. Well, Charlie. Yes, sir. It's been a pleasure, man. Always a pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you, yeah. and uh, you have so many great stories. I know you could go on for days, and I could be prying more stuff out of you, but uh, no, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I love it. Send in your questions, folks. And send in your questions. Buy yourself a CD. <laughs> yeah, Don't... Mississippi Sun. I think. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm playing guitar on every tune. All right. And overdubbed harmonica. <laughs> Was it all overdubbed? Did you do any uh, rack tarp on there? Or? I, well, you know, I could play on the rack, but I could play so much better yeah, without the rack. Without it, yeah. I thought it'd be more effective. To no, I can see that. But yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like a natural thing. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.